He'll come back for the second. India have won the test match. India have won the series. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the 81 All Out podcast. This is Siddhartha Vaidyanathan. I'm at SidV on Twitter. And I'm happy to be joined today by Duncan Stone, a historian and author of Different Class, The Untold Story of English Cricket, a book that I thoroughly enjoyed and a book that I found has a lot of resonance with one of my favorite cricket writers, Mike Marcusey. Um, uh, Duncan Stone's book uh, reminded me a lot of Anyone But England that uh, Marcusey wrote in the 1990s. And of course, it goes a few steps further because it uh, unearths a lot of really important research and it talks about uh, the history of the professional game in England and professional sort of leagues. It talks about uh, the institutional discrimination that many clubs face. It's essentially a people's history of the game and it um, sort of has a lot of, uh, as I said, I mentioned Marcosi, but there's also, you know, bits that you can, that are evocative of CLR James and um, uh, Roland Bowen and uh, several other writers who have gone in this direction. Probably not several, actually. I would say a handful of other writers who have gone in this direction. Welcome, Duncan. Thank you so much. I'm glad we could finally make this happen. Yes, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's lovely to be here. Fantastic having you. And, uh, you know, for our 81 All Out listeners, a regular reminder before we start off, uh, 81 All Out is in the book republishing space. We did republish uh, Mike Marcusi's book, uh, War Minus the Shooting. Uh, Not anyone but England, but the other book that was quite famous when it came out, War Minus the Shooting on the 1996 World Cup. And we also republished uh, Mike Coward's uh, Cricket Beyond the Bazaar recently. So I'll link the uh, books there. Please pick it up. It's great. So now coming to uh, Duncan Stone's book, and uh, I mean, the the line that I have to start with and the line that absolutely encapsulates so much of this book is, I'm going to quote it now, England is so mired in its own mythology that those in control cannot see or wish to consider any alternative to the game's orthodox history. Um Absolutely, you know, uh, sort of stellar line there, Duncan. And uh, I'd love for you to start with that and talk about what, how one can look at this and what it should tell us. Yeah, crikey. It's, uh, it might only be one sentence in the book, but uh, I did then pretty much spend the next 320 pages trying to explain, <laughs> explain why that was the case. But yes, I think cricket but cricket in England specifically is held back by its own mythology and its own culture. Cricket in England is its own worst enemy. And as complicated as it is, uh, this does boil down to a particularly English spirit of cricket. Uh, I think the English were the first to really start attributing uh, the sort of metaphysical (laughs) uh, properties on a game. Uh, And after the recent Mancad incident uh, between England and India's women, uh, you know, the spirit of cricket, as you've recently discussed on another podcast, um, is something at the forefront of the game 
in England in particular, where it must be said an awful lot of people regard cricket as a superior form of sport to any other game. Uh, but significantly, that isn't because cricket is a better game to play or watch. It's superior on a moral level. Um, now, personally, I find the notion that any sport has a spirit, in inverted commas, uh, problematic. And the reasons why are that this spirit is used as a weapon uh, again, as you discussed uh, on the Pakistan Cricket pod, uh, Podcast, is this spirit is a cultural weapon that bolsters certain groups above others, even to the point that it gives them moral authority over the game. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's uh, interesting you brought up the incident with Deepti Sharma and um, the India-England women's game. And one particular uh, thing, that strand that has stood out for me throughout, whether it's uh, Joss Butler, Moeen Ali, uh, Ben Stokes, everything, it seems that the line that keeps coming up is, this is not how we were taught to play the game. This is not how we learned the game. And Ben Stokes, in fact, there was this uh, long tweet thread by Harsha Bogle, the, uh, the Indian commentator, yes. uh, who posted it about how this is very connected to English culture and how England views cricket. And Ben Stokes Absolutely. actually scoffed at that and said, Harsha is connecting this incident to culture and said and acted as if that was a ridiculous connection when it is yeah. staring at your face, isn't it? I'm, af I'm afraid uh, Ben's got that uh, wrong. <laughs> a bit like anyone who claims uh, there's no politics in sport or vice versa. <laughs> Uh, the more that anyone claims that, the more you can be sure they have a vested interest uh, somewhere along the line. Uh, but yes, uh, Harsha was absolutely correct in what in that connection because, again, it's this fact that cricket uh, is mired in its mythology, but it's so entrenched that people like Ben will make shall we say, an innocent, innocent judgment on that. Um, but we see it a lot in discussions uh, over cricket now. It manifests itself in, shall we say, traditionalists on cricket Twitter, uh, you know, throwing the term around to people with a different point of view as them or people who prefer shorter forms of the game as they're not proper cricket fans. And, you know, this is where the culture really becomes divisive. But regrettably, the culture of English cricket was, as I uh, portray throughout the book, it was designed to be divisive. But that said, I think British sport in general suffers from this. It's not exclusive to cricket. Um and it comes from the Victorian concept of the gentleman amateur uh, and the fact that, you know, the English never cheat. Uh, and as I say at the end of the book, you know, I hate the fact that cricket is burdened with unwarranted responsibilities, such as instilling better educational habits or good character traits into children. 
uh, because these mythical properties were divide, designed to, you know, divide people, particularly, and it gives this, you know, it's this superiority again, where, you know, English cricket fans and to a certain extent, rugby union fans think their their sport and they as people are better than those who either play or follow football. It's nonsense. Yeah, and and I must uh, I mean admit that you know there there is a certain allure to this uh, greater than life depiction of cricket, and you know when you're young and when you're impressionable, it's very easy to get sucked into it and drawn into it. And oh, yes. I remember reading the poems of uh, you know uh, poems like Vitae Lampada, which uh, of course talks about play up, play up, and play the game, and then mm-hmm. uh, has all this allusion to the war and uh, you know the. Uh, Gatling's uh, gone, the colonel's dead. There, there are certain. There is a certain magnetic pull that you feel when you read those things. And then when Michael Atherton makes that a um, hundred in Johannesburg to save a test, and when a writer compares it to the Battle of Dunkirk, as ridiculous as it is, there is a certain. <laughs> there is a certain. I can understand why an impressionable person might be drawn to it. But as you read more and as you mature. I would think that you realize how bogus all this is and how dangerous actually yes. all this is and what how what dangers it has caused other people uh, because of this glorification. Well, I mean, just to say it again, as I, I, as I say at the end of the book, and you're right, it is dangerous. And this is where poor history leads you. Now, you say as people mature, you know, um, there are an awful lot of people in the traditionalist camp who should be old enough <laughs> to know better. But they don't because this, over time, becomes an integral part of someone's identity. As dangerous and as bogus as it may be, people buy into it. And... As you, you know, and I'm still pinching myself that uh, people like yourself are comparing me to Marcuse. Uh, but his notion that, you know, the lies that English, English cricket tells itself uh, actually applies to the British and British history as a whole. And these lies or myths, if people prefer, do have serious cons- consequences. And most recently, um, Brexit, which is based on a wholly fictional view of ourselves. And cricket suffers from the same problem and could go the same way if we don't actually step back and reappraise the history of cricket and what it means and who it should serve. Yeah, and it's uh, pretty obvious that the establishment and a large chunk of the cricketing, uh, you know, the people who are controlling the narrative do not like these histories being told. Because apart from, at least from my view as somebody who's on the outside, apart from uh, this book, of course, and then Marcuse and C.L.R. James, who uh, explores all this uh, quite a bit, but uh, comes from it from a different point of view. Mm. And Bowen, who is probably the pioneer in this regard, I can't Definitely. think of any other book that has actually gone against the grain and tried to explode this myth. Every Everything else seems to just follow 
this myth-making tradition. Yes, I mean, because a lot of people have built um, very nice careers out of it. You know, the um, English cricket has been blessed with some um, very talented writers who are who were nothing more than sycophants. Um, but you must, uh, when we talk about books that have gone against the grain, I think you would need, it should be here somewhere, uh, The Willow Wand by Derek Burley. By Derek Burley. I've read that, that one. That, that, rather than his social history of English cricket, definitely is up there. But as you say, Bowen, he's the governor. <laughs> he started it all off. Yes, I mean, you know, th there is, uh, there has to be a or looks like this, which is why I'm glad that uh, Marquise's uh, Anyone But England is still uh, in print. They did come out with a second, with a republished version mm. a few years ago. And I'm glad that you have written this book because for pe for us, honestly, for people who are out of the English cricket system, when Marquise's book came, at least for me, when Marquise's Anyone But England came, it was so uh, such a breath of fresh air because I felt that he was articulating exactly what I was thinking and what I was feeling, but couldn't put into words. There, there was a reason why anyone but England strikes such a chord for who, people who are on the outside and who were part of the colonies at one point. But we just couldn't say it because we weren't as erudite and as learned as Marcus was. So... Um, I think it's important, and I think the more English cricket actually confronts this issue, the better it is for them, because, you know, with Asim Rafiq uh, and other such instances, it's it's important to wake up, at least now, isn't it? Isn't oh, Asim Rafiq so closely related to what you're saying in your book? Yeah, oh, it, it's absolutely essential. You know, as I just said, you know, um, bad history leads to bad decisions. Uh, and that's why, you know, as part of this broader cultural war that is afflicting the UK for the last sort of five or six years, if not longer, um, you know, cricket is one realm of society, especially in light of Azim Rafiq, etc., uh, that has an opportunity to, you know, make significant changes for, dare I say it, the common good. Um but yes, it's interesting, you know, and you're saying, you know, when anyone but England came out, uh, you know, he articulated what you'd long been thinking. I think there is a significant difference um, between people who are, I suppose, in the thick of it over here and people from the out who are outside and can maybe look at things a bit more objectively. Um, and you could tell that in the reviews of anyone but England. You know, it was universally praised, uh, you know, in India and other countries. Uh, but here in England, where the cricket establishment, you know, prevailed, prevails, uh, snotty reviews uh, probably don't cover it. They damned it with faint praise. Um, and even my books had uh, a similar review in The Cricketer, where the reviewer chose to highlight me having a pop at uh, Swanton, who also didn't like Mark Hughes's book, uh, rather than focus on the uh, pretty solid examples of institutional racism in the book. Well, 
what is that reviewer's priorities? Patently not racism. So, yeah, yeah remember, it's important. It's important. I remember one of the uh, 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 reviews by Christopher Martin Jenkins of Anyone But England, where yeah. he said, Marcuse, uh, you know, puts down everything that cricketers hold sacred. And I said, didn't you think of why that may be the case? Why the things that you hold sacred are actually worth putting down and not <laughs> worth holding up? Which brings me actually to further back from Christopher Martin Jenkins to, uh, you know, the high priest of English cricket writing, I may call him, but somebody who you have termed the game's foremost propagandist, who oh. is Neville Car- Neville, Sir Neville <laughs> Cardis, who, uh, you know, it's it's important to bring up Cardis here and other writers because a lot of the writing back then was in aesthetic terms about stylish batsmen and stylish amateurs and uh, bowlers who were portrayed as mechanical professionals who were there and for profit. I mean, this is uh, this was a running theme in several reports and books that went on. Mm. Yeah, this was, as I say in the book, um, this was ideology. Uh, disguised as culture or art. And it's very clever. Um, you know, if you, if uh, an amateur all-rounder who's obviously got a private income uh, can afford to play the game for nothing, <laughs> of course, they were claiming expenses that probably outweighed uh, the professional's wages. Um, you know, they can, they're playing for love. You know, that they are embodying the ideals of amateurism, on paper at least. Whereas, of course, yes, the invariably working-class professionals, be they bowlers or batsmen, you know, had to play for money because, by being professionals, it was their living. But this was, uh, you know, one branch of the multi-fronted cultural war that was waged for the soul of English cricket. Uh, if I can get metaphysical again. <laughs> um, cricket doesn't have a soul, of course. Um, but that's what they were uh, arguing over. Who lay, who could lay claim to a soul, in inverted commas? Yeah, and I think basically what they were try- also doing was erasing a lot that went before. Because if you look at the books from the... 1800s and even before Wisdom was published, if you look at those books, there are clear chapters that list the betting rates, like the pounds that people bet on games. Now, obviously, this was no holy game because people actually went and bet on it and made money on it. And this was like, you know, several other sports that you have today. But people like I think Cardis and everyone else around that time were basically trying to erase that... uh, past and trying to build this glorious uh, present for the game when the glory when actually it was always a game for profit it was always a game for all sorts of people to uh, engage in all sorts of vices absolutely yes i mean drinking and feasting and gambling um that was at the heart of uh, cricket's uh, early popularity uh this, which obviously has been covered uh, in other books, you know, more orthodox histories. Uh, and people like Burley don't, 
shy away from the gambling element. Um, but other so-called historians, uh, I would probably accuse them more of being antiquarianists, um, have overlooked the more seedy aspects of cricket's early years. Uh, and that trend has continued to the point where they have overlooked the recreational or non-first-class level of cricket that I uh, unpick in my book. Yeah, so I mean, you brought only, up the... It's only been one side of the story told, and, it, and I'm, you know, again, certain people have said uh, my book is, you know, wholly one-sided and I've got an agenda. Well, what about the five to 10,000 other books that have only ever been written from one perspective. Just because I'm one of only four others that have railed against an orthodoxy doesn't make my story unbalanced or one-sided. It's a different point. I'm looking at cricket from the bottom up rather than the top down. And again, that's, that's something that hasn't really been done in any depth before. Yeah, I mean, if you are one out of a hundred uh, people who are writing the other history of uh, England, I don't know who has the agenda. I th I'm pretty sure it's not <laughs> the one person who's having the agenda here. Um, well, I'm certainly not in their club. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but the point is, I uh, I want to drill a bit deeper into is aesthetics and morality. There is aesthetics. That is one part of it, which is art, cricket as art, which C.L.R. James writes a lot about. And that is understandable. You know, he, he considers cricket a dramatic spectacle and all that is fine. But there is also mm. the additional layer of morality that comes in, right? Like the, the, the honest, the blemishless innings or the, 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 the honest bowler. And, and that's there, the, there's so much that gets in there, the gutsy knock and, that's all attributing to morality. You're not really talking about what they're doing, but you're talking about who they are. Mm, yes, and this and this is one thing that um, uh, John Arlott recognised. You know, technique, irrespective of its aesthetic quality, was a strictly utilitarian matter. Do you score runs? Do you get wickets? And that, again, isn't so much morality, but the fact that uh, many uh, amateur players, some who captained England, were very average players. But, you know, the mythical aesthetic qualities that they purportedly brought to cricket were a price worth paying for losing against Australia incessantly. <laughs> and that still pervades certain people's... I mean, it probably reached its nadir uh, after Bradman's Invincibles. As I cover in the book, there was mass debate uh, in throughout all levels of English cricket about how are we going to avoid, you know, such a comprehensive drubbing at the hands of the Australians again. And yet the editor of the Kent County Cricket Club yearbook said that the spirit of cricket was a price worth paying, even if we never 
and I'm paraphrasing, even if we never won another Ashes match again, you know, the spirit of cricket, as they understood it, must be preserved at all costs. Totally forgetting, of course, that, you know, first-class cricket is international sport and should, if you're organising it properly, represent the very best that your country has to offer. And English cricket, to this day, doesn't do that. And that's what was at the heart of last winter's ashes and all the debates that have been going on since then. So, you know, you can you can link that with morality, but I think if you're consciously avoiding picking the best players, if you're consciously avoiding a meritocratic system of organising what is a professional sport since 1963, that isn't a very moral stance. You should, if people are good enough, then they should be given the opportunity. But English cricket has never been organised in that way. So you did mention the 1963 when it became the, the professional sport, but there is so much of baggage that English cricket still carries, right? I mean, it's the public school ethos, but if you, you can go back to Tom Brown's school days, uh, which was written all those years ago. But the fact that a very small class of cricketers and people in England control cricket, play cricket, and, con- uh, well, play cricket may be an exaggeration, but control cricket um, is the fundamental problem. Yeah, and this and this is what CLR James recognised. You know, he recognised that the literalisation of cricket in England in particular was central to the formation of national identities. And and English national identity in particular has been influenced, even if it might be becoming a minority sport today, it has, you know, these idioms that whether you like cricket or not, you, you know, playing with a straight bat and all of these things, you know, this is just how, you know, uni- omnipresent the culture of cricket was even outside of the game itself. Uh, So, yes, Cardus, as you mentioned, and other orthodox historians, you know, have convinced the British public, past and present, uh, that it is this higher game. Uh, Without, strictly speaking, if you scratch beneath the surface, ever really living up to that ideal. But isn't that uh, such a lofty barrier for those who are trying to play the game because they've sort of bought this myth that cricket is this higher game? Uh, And so you're automatically eliminating a large section of the population that perhaps wants to get involved quite uh, a lot in the game. Yes, absolutely. I mean, so to go back to aesthetics again, you know, you see on Twitter, on the feed, you know, they'll, somebody will post, oh, you know, oh, you know, I won't use any profanities, but, you know, people will just say, oh, look at this shot, you know, you know, I'll take it, I'll buy it dinner. <laughs> so if this shot was a woman, I would buy it dinner, you know. Uh, and they'll show a video, 30-second clip of, um, I don't know, a cover drive or even a reverse sweep that goes for six. But nobody... I'm afraid, 
that might upset a few listeners here, but nobody will convince me that either of those shots is more aesthetically pleasing than any number of goals scored by Dennis Bergkamp in an Arsenal shirt. They just, they aesthetically, they don't compare because what Bergkamp does with a football involves speed of thought, spontaneity, and lots of practice. A cover drive, to all intents and purposes, is muscle memory. They might hit it very well, but that batsman, once they get to an international level, will have played that shot hundreds of thousands of times. Uh, so it isn't spontaneous. I mean, the first time we ever saw a reverse sweep, that was innov- innovation. But all batsmen now, especially uh, with the advent of 2020, are being more creative. But in terms of aesthetics, you know, I'm, I'm afraid I think football, when it's done well, uh, wins out in that regard. Um, so, but but uh, the people do post po- goals of Dennis Burkamp and say oh, the of course same they thing do. as well, right? As, as yeah. they should. <laughs> But it isn't it isn't fetishized in the same way. Um, ah. It isn't this, you know, this aesthetic beauty isn't, you know, you're admiring Dennis for being Dennis. You're admiring him, not the shot necessarily. Uh, but as you you're right in what you say, though, the whether you agree with what I've just said or not, uh, I think this idea of credit cricket as a, a higher aesthetic endeavour does the game no favours because it does put off people who would not necessarily want to buy into that image or those who can see it for what it is. And a large part of this is also how the uh, people who are involved in covering cricket and talking about cricket and running cricket, uh, finding talent, coaching on cricket are so many of them are pretty much from the same background, right? They mm. they probably went to similar schools. They grew up in similar households. They uh, probably had people in the family play cricket too, um, you know, who led them to play cricket. I mean, it's not like they are coming from the outside and giving a fresh perspective. They're all very much parts of the system and they're doing what their dads probably did before them or their granddads before that, etc. Yeah, well, that was um, in part my introduction to cricket. Uh, my granddad was a very serious cricketer. Um, sadly, I was only ooh, five when he died, so I don't really remember ever seeing him play. Uh, Dad dabbled, but he was definitely more of a football man. Um, but I think my gateway drug, if you like, was the fact that cricket was on the television. The BBC would, as long as the cricket was on, it would be shown. And, you know, I'm 53 now. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I'm of a generation that had the luxury of watching, even though there are only three channels nationally, uh, you know, sport was on almost permanently. Uh, and obviously cricket in the summer was a major part of our lives if we weren't outside climbing trees or trying to emulate what we'd just watched on the television. Uh, regrettably, you know, since the advent of Sky and the, and the ECB throwing 
um, broadcast coverage out to the free market, um, we have disenfranchised millions of cricket fans in this country who either don't want or can't afford uh, a subscription to Sky. Uh, and that's a real tragedy for the game because it happened, you know, straight after the 2005 Ashes, which is 1981 notwithstanding. Uh, that's the best series of cricket that I remember sort of living through. So, yeah, it's, it's short, you know, cricket's making short-term decisions <laughs> um, that aren't paying off. You know, here we are, you know, many years later and we're all wondering what, what to do to sort of recapture the interest that we've lost over the last 15 years or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm trying to understand, say, somebody who, you know, has no background in cricket, didn't have their family or anyone play cricket, d- does not go to a public school, uh, you know, goes to, what is the other schools that you call it, a regular school? What, what is the uh, other? Comprehensives. Okay, goes to a comprehensive. Or a state but, school. State school, but wants to play cricket. Uh, what are the chances? I mean, how high are the barriers for someone like that to play, to actually play the game? Oh, well, it's a long time since I was at uh, Park Barn. Suffice <laughs> <laughs> uh, to say, uh, we didn't play cricket. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, we didn't play football. Uh, our games teachers liked basketball uh, in the winter and baseball in the summer or softball. Uh, I think it's potluck. You either need to have a go to a school uh, that has the facilities, um, and a, again, more importantly, arguably, a, a games teacher with a passion for the game. You know, as I discovered, you know, you might have a games teacher that doesn't even want to play football. So, you know, it's it's essentially their decision at the end of the day. So. The game, I think, still relies on familial uh, contacts. You know, do you have uh, a granddad or a dad or an uncle who plays the game or not? Because you're not going to get inspired unless you have Sky. And invariably, I think a dad or whoever who's going to pay for that subscription, um, if he has the cricket as part of the package, then they're already interested. So I think the barriers are are massive. Uh, And then, of course, the way cricket is organised, even once they're in the wild, if you like, and playing at a club, uh, the way English cricket is organised means if you're, especially from uh, the Black or South Asian community, and you're relying on municipal uh, facilities, uh, then you're not going to be playing mainstream cricket. Uh, and again, in the book, I highlight just how much of a problem that is in terms of the structural racism uh, that goes all the way down to the grassroots in English cricket. But again, sadly, it's by design. Uh, and the lack of action to deal with these structures and barriers um, has been willful because we've known since, oh, crikey, 1999, I think, was the ECB's first report 
into this. And the things that they highlighted then are still being highlighted now. Yeah, I mean, even listening to Azim Rafiq's uh, testimony, you realize that even when you do make it, and even when you do get into a first-class side like Yorkshire, I mean, mm. perhaps, you know, the, the side with uh, a first-class county with so much of history behind it, it's still so hard for someone from the outside to actually play the game the way they would just want to. I mean, to just be part of a team because you're constantly faced with uh, racism, uh, all sorts of discrimination, right? And so it's it's very hard, even even if you make it. Yeah, and this and this is where this culture of cricket as you know the village green, you know, as a gentleman's game, and you know we never cheat, and you know <laughs> different different people play cricket according to different. You know, as you were discussing on the other podcast, you know, a mancad wouldn't bat an eyelid. You know, and as as I sort of said. You know, we exchanged a couple of emails earlier, didn't I? And and I said, if Maradona, the Falklands War notwithstanding, if Maradona had scored the hand of God goal against Italy, they would have almost applauded him. <laughs> I mean, I might be stretching that point, but no way would they still be talking about it <laughs> almost 40 years later. They just wouldn't. Because it's they don't have this, as you say, baggage. They play sport to win. And we try and play both hands or play one side off the other. When it's convenient to the English, you know, we are as competitive and prone to cheating as anyone else. But when it's done to us, as the Indian ladies did against uh, the English recently then it's the end of the world and the game is gone (laughs) but we can't have it both ways but that is good old-fashioned victorian era hypocrisy in the 21st century (laughs) yeah it's interesting you brought up hypocrisy because there is also an outrage about not accepting the umpire's decision but only sometimes and then there is an outrage about the bowler affecting the run out of the non-striker's end. But that, even though the umpire has given that person out, has given that uh, cricketer out, you still will not accept that you have to accept the umpire's decision. Now, in this case, it's against the spirit of the game. But then tomorrow there would be another case when a batsman, uh, when a batter stands their ground. And then you're like, no, you have to accept the Empire's decision. But then what happened that day? You didn't accept it then. So, yeah, it's 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 a real blatant hypocrisy. Yeah, definitely. But um, I did a review of a book many, many years ago um, on Welsh cricket. And they had, uh, I think it was a cutting from a, a newspaper uh, where basically the batsman was out according to the fielding side, but he wasn't given by the umpire. And he was quoted as saying, well, it's the umpire's decision. And if he's not going to give me out, I'm not walking. The year, 1856. So (laughs) I think it's, you know, as bad as 
you know, if we take, um, and I was actually there to witness it, if we take uh, the late Andrew Simon's edge against India at the SCG when he was on 17 and Wait, Steve You Buckner, were there to witness it? I was there too. I was at the that press test box, match. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was at the test match, yeah. I was okay. living in Australia at the time. Yeah. And um, obviously he didn't, it didn't walk because Steve Buckner never gave him out. We could hear the edge from the stands. Yes. yes. Um, and there was merry hell on, as you could imagine. But if Steve Buckner, bless him, didn't give him out, because he didn't know what was up or down at that point, I think he'd been bamboozled by incessant appealing from Warren and everybody. Um, and it was a real shame. Uh especially as he went on to score 200 and something, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he got was, 100 and something. Or was yeah. it 150 something? He got he got a big score anyway. Um, but he's within his right to stand his ground, as Stuart Broad was, because the umpire is there to make that call. Um, and, you know, if you're... If you're the uh, non-striking batsman, you stay in your crease until you know the bowlers release the ball. No, there's no grey area as far as I'm concerned. The rule, the rules are there, but you know, cricket and cricket followers love love a good debate about uh, the morality. <laughs> yeah, uh, the one aspect of uh, the last bit I want to touch upon about the fetishize fetishization of cricket is that you write very sort of uh, emphatically about certain books and certain certain st- strand of cricket writing where that sort of glorifies uh, the bumbling cricketer or oh, yes. the, in- the incompetent cricketer. And, uh, <laughs> and you also, well, in an email exchange with me, you sort of said you drew the clear distinction between a lesser skilled cricketer who obviously many of us who have played cricket know exactly what that is at least mm-hmm. I do uh, because I was a less skilled cricketer and sort of glorifying the bad pathetic cricketer and you quoted a few books in there and you feel that that has also called, had left some serious damage on the way cricket is viewed in the country. Oh yes, uh, I got I got into um, serious trouble on on a different podcast uh, of uh, two more uh, slightly traditional uh, uh, English cricket pundits, shall we say? Um, but yes, I think uh, the fetishization of poor play within a, a certain brand of cricket writing demeans the game. Uh, so we might as well name the book. So Rain Man. Penguin stop play uh, and fibber in the heat. They they all highlight how white, privately educated middle class men are able to turn their incompetence into self depreciating humour, and then profiting from that uh, thanks to a publishing industry that fe- that frequently feature in these books. You know, this is the amateur professional distinction of old that we've discussed a moment ago in contemporary print form. You know, 
just as the amateurs were excused poor performances um, because of their aesthetic contribution, you know, the working class professional, much like the working classes more broadly today, cannot afford to fail, let alone turn that failure into a profit-making exercise. So this is white male privilege applied to cricket. And the other podcast, a couple of weeks after I appeared on it, did a discussion of cricket in literature and very much took me to task (laughs) in my absence for about half an hour, I think it was, um, that I was, you know, a killjoy, basically, and, you know, let let them have their fun. Um, I'm all for that. You know, I'm all for people having fun in sport. But working class people with the precious time that they have, if they are going to play cricket, they want to play in a meaningful way. There needs to be, like the old gamblers of all classes, there needed to be something on it. And a competitive league or a cup uh, is the way forward because I think if you, if you, you know, you can't be out first ball and all of this, non- you are demeaning cricket as a competitive sport. You know, why are you there? Are you just there just to have a quick jolly on the field and then prop up the bar? Or are you there to play sport? And for me, I can't help it. When I give up my precious weekend to play cricket, I want some competition. I want a contest. Uh, And win, lose or draw, then you can, uh, you know, have a few jars afterwards, if so inclined. Uh, But actually having a whole genre of books dedicated to these pathetic cricketers, (laughs) if I may be so bold, is white male privilege. And and it strikes me that there aren't, there isn't actually, uh, I can't think of a single book actually written outside England in this vein. I mean, I can't think of a single Australian book, in fact, written uh, I think the great cricketer. I think the great cricketer was mentioned in the other podcast, but I mean, there's an awful lot of pathos and, um, you know, quite it's quite dark uh, in places, isn't it? Um, so I wouldn't say it was all the old, uh, you know, uh, hit and giggle stuff that we see uh, in the English um, branch. But yeah, you're right. It is again a particularly English phenomenon. And then it's that 6% of the population again, isn't it, invariably? Yeah, which, which, which is uh, a telling number for me. I didn't realise that. Uh, if you can just talk about that, the 6% of the population basically the runs the country. They attend fee-paying or private schools, you know, like Eton and Harrow, uh, that are invariably churning out uh, government minister after minister... <laughs> For the last 200 years. Um, And cricket administrators, of course. Um, So, yeah, 6% of the population go to private school. Eton and Harrow, who play their annual fixture at Lord's, despite Uh, the recent decision, which was reversed, I see. And they continue to play. 
Yeah, I had that piece in ESPN, which again attracted uh, some fairly ahistorical criticisms. That you know, I'm just I just have an agenda. Well, actually, mate. <laughs> I've spent 13 years of my life researching this. <laughs> I do know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, I won't get into the specifics of that, but I do want to talk about, um, I mean, I'll link the article that you wrote for sure, but uh, I, I do want to talk about the part of your book, which was quite remarkable for me. I never, I didn't know about this before, and I think many of our listeners should know more about this and read about it. Uh, can you talk about the outlawing of competitive cricket in the south of England? Uh, and if you, because it strikes me as a remarkable form of institutional discrimination, and I'm quite sad that I didn't know about it till I read your book. Well, this is a thing. Um, there's an awful lot of people out there who will regard themselves as, shall we say, students of the game, who will be completely ignorant of this even though they may well have lived through the period it existed. But the banning of competitive cricket in the form of cups and leagues in the south-east of England specifically uh, was the basis of my PhD that forms, uh, that became the book. Uh, indeed, I would argue the underlying revelation of the book is the extent that the elites of Britain detest meritocracy. And that is what they didn't like about cup and league competition, is that it is meritocratic. The best team invariably wins. Um, so in a nutshell, knockout cup competitions, beginning with the FA Cup, and leagues, beginning with the Football League, ensured that sport lived up to its billing as the great social leveller. Now, in football, what this ultimately uh, meant is that football became a professional game in 1885. And this ended the dominance of football teams invariably made up of ex-public schoolboys. So sports administrators throughout cricket and other sports learned a valuable lesson there. And they then started erecting the barriers that we were talking about earlier to ensure similar meritocratic outcomes did not occur. So rugby split in two uh, in 1895 into amateur and professional codes. Athletics was entirely amateur. And cricket, uh, interestingly, rejected the idea of a three-division county cricket league in 1889. So at the recreational level, things were different. And nationwide, ordinary cricketers like you and me would have played cup and league cricket. But the hiatus caused by the First World War allowed an organisation called the Club Cricket Conference, which was established in London in uh, January 1916, to essentially criminalise competitive cricket. So after the First World War, uh, you had this allowed 
a cohort of elite clubs to not simply choose who they played against, but create their own discrete realm of club cricket, as they called it, that came to define all cricket played in the South thereafter. Of course, these were the clubs populated by the middle and upper classes, uh, you know, uh, people with Sir and stuff after their names, uh, and they had the best facilities. So these are the clubs that were written about in magazines like The Cricketer uh, and in, you know, hagiographical books about the club game. But there were, as I say in the book, plenty of leagues throughout the South. But as these were invariably populated by the working class, they never got written about. Even as I found while doing my research in the local newspapers. Uh, So actually, this might explain why the book took so long. Actually finding evidence of these leagues' existence it was in many cases uh, just fortuitous luck because uh, often, you know, references would be like a needle in a haystack. I've I've read <coughs> every copy of the Surrey Advertiser from about 1890 up to 1970 uh, and before 1968 when league cricket was reintroduced. Uh, any reference to league cricket was very rare. But yes, thank you for that remarkable, remarkable research. It's, it's, and, it's, uh, it is, and that, and that's the subtitle of of the book. It is the untold story of English cricket, but it's the cricket that actually the largest number of people were involved in. You know, when you actually look at first class or professional cricket, it's actually a tiny, even today, a tiny proportion of the cricket that is played in this country. Uh, So it is surprising when you sort of step back and think about it, why this history hasn't been written before, you know, by somebody else. Yeah, I mean, it it sort of, uh, I mean, I'm probably stretching it a bit, but I do think that there is a comparison to be made in, to say, like a country like South Africa, where, you know, the leagues that were not, where the whites didn't play, were not Mm -hmm. recognised by Absolutely. the board and nobody knows what i mean of course the people who played very well know what happened but scorecards aren't there people didn't report on it people didn't write on it so it's very 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 hard to find a history of the non-white leagues in south africa which seems pretty similar well, to I what's think, going on here yeah i think it still applies today in this country um you know predominantly south asian leagues remain outside of the ecb recreational mainstream and again um, record keeping isn't really a thing these days you know I help run a a football club locally and we'll have an AGM and if anyone remembers to do the minutes you know it's not the detailed layered stuff that I was researching um, that people had written down in 1895 you know they knew how to keep records, the Victorians, God bless them. Um, but we, you know, we seem, even in a technological age, you know, that is something that has fallen by the wayside at, uh, you know, amateur levels of sport. 
uh, which is a shame. Future historians uh, are going to have their work cut out. Which is a shame because at, at one level, people are talking about how the future of English cricket is by tapping in talent from the South Asian community. But on the other hand, you have whole leagues that are not even recognized and not even, and where you can't even find any records. So how does the two reconcile? doesn't, right? Uh, well, I mean, this is what I said at the beginning. Uh, English cricket has never, ever made the most of the resources it has available. Uh, for my money... Um, I think the three-division county cricket league uh, would be the way forward. Um, I think cricket needs a system similar to that that exists in football. Uh, so, you know, the classic football league four-division pyramid, this federal system, is the most meritocratic structure that exists in world sport. If you're at the bottom of Division 4 currently, or whatever they call it these days, you, if you are good enough, can get promoted to the Premier League. That simply has never... Cricket has operated under a series of unitary systems where different counties will play different formats. There is no interaction. The, the county championship has been a closed shop and because of that there is not enough jeopardy in the game everybody essentially knows they're safe I'm not saying they lack ambition but they could be a little bit more ambitious or creative in their search for talent if there was more jeopardy involved in the game for instance if by some freak of uh, chance, my team, Surrey, found themselves at the bottom of Division 3 of a three-division county cricket league, they might be tempted, as they have done recently with the ACE programme, to go into the local community, be it West Indian or South Asian, and actually start looking elsewhere for talent instead of this public school conveyor belt that the counties seem to take for granted. Uh, so I think, despite things like the South Asian Action Plan, I think all of that is strict, is nothing more than window dressing, uh, and it will achieve little or nothing until the structure of English cricket is actually made meritocratic. That, I know it sounds, but it is meritocratic. You know, it's two-division league. But there is no, you know, if I, I would say if you gave it 10 years, there would be nothing to stop uh, either expanding those divisions or even creating a fourth division. As the ACE programme and the South Asian uh, Cricket Academy have instantly proved there is talent out there. But currently, they are either representing uh, the wrong communities, the wrong clubs, or, as we've discussed earlier, the wrong culture. That 
is what needs to change. And meritocracy is the key for all of this, in my view. If looking at the history of the game and what has worked in football, cricket could learn a lot from its own past and what has worked in football to make it a people's game, which I will say blue in the face, till I'm blue in the face, cricket at its heart is a people's game. But it isn't. <laughs> so so a story like Leicester City is impossible in cricket, right? I mean, to actually come from the division below and then to, add, to win the Premier Division. I mean, it doesn't seem likely, right? In no, the way so English cricket stands. To take... Uh, oh, I'm trying to remember the name of the... Begins with K... Anyway, but to take uh, an ECB Premier League club from Leicester, they cannot go any further. There is no, they are, if they're at the top, if they're Division One of the ECB Premier League, whatever it is, that's their lot. And if a player wants to progress, they have to leave that club and go to a county. Mm. You know, they can only operate within a system as it exists. But I actually think a little bit more scope for, and a three-division league would do this, if actually a county club that were not, you know, pulling their weight or simply were not up to standard, were threatened with relegation to the ECB Premier League and one of these you know, if, if a local entrepreneur was bankrolling them and, you know, I think, I think that would be the, um, the kick up the backside that some of the county clubs might need. And I think over time, and again, you're looking at at least a 10 to 15 year uh, time period before it's sort of bedded in, I think you would see more... Uh, working-class cricketers and especially more South Asian cricketers making the grade because the game would all of a sudden be open to them because that club's success relies on them picking better players. This, this was uh, something that happened in um, India over the last, has happened over the last 20 years as more and more money came into the game. And then, of course, you had the IPL come in in 2008 and the sort of the uh, breadth of cricketers increased considerably. And now you have cricketers coming from all sorts of backgrounds in yes. uh, from various parts of the country. And there's not just the IPL, there's even like lower levels of franchise cricket, like uh, the Tamil Nadu Premier League, the Karnataka Premier League, where which has good money in there for cricketers to say, okay, even if I play just two seasons of this, it's still great for me. So you have a lot of talent coming in. Do you see something similar happening with the 100 and the T20 in England? Or do you think that even those formats are still like really restricted by the structure of the ECB and the structure of English cricket? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think I think the hundred is nothing less than a disaster. The hundred is the biggest elephant in the room at the moment, and obviously that is what has riled an awful lot of um, cricket supporters 
Obviously, there was the meeting at Lancashire County Cricket Club this week. Uh, I think the 100, a lot more so than the Blast, because obviously the Blast uh, is played under the county system. I think the the, the 100 is detrimental to the game and it's been introduced for all the wrong reasons. Uh, And it has been suggested in some quarters that this is a progressive move because it lacks the baggage of the county championship and indeed the county cricket clubs themselves. But what that tells me, what that speaks to me, is that the ECB and the counties are not prepared to make the cultural and personnel changes required in the existing format to make the game inclusive. They're just going to, you know, let sleeping dogs lie. They're going to leave the status quo as it is and then pin all their hopes and and I'm pretty sure um, greater involvement of ethnic minorities was an afterthought. Um, they're they're pinning their hopes that that might just sort of free, in you know, open doors to you know different groups. You know, this new audience that they were talking about. Um, I just don't see it. You know, again, until you actually have the basic meritocratic uh, federal system in place, I think everything is uh you know, you're pissing in the wind sorry <laughs> um yeah it's like the south asian action plan and anything that the ecb may or may not come up with specifically aimed at the black community you know it's window dressing the basic structure has to be sorted first uh, you can put as many whistles and bells on the game as you like um but their distractions rather than actually dealing with the inherent problems that you know we've been discussing today so but the but there is some hope with the south asian uh, the action program right i mean that it does seem to have uh, brought in some kind of plus to the system it hasn't it hasn't but it was flawed it was flawed from the start really um, I actually have a piece coming out in the Cricketer next month, or so I'm told, uh, which discusses that very point. Um, again, it's about increasing participation among the South Asian community, when really it should all be about increasing integration. These are two very different things. Uh, and as you and I both know, participation among the South Asian community is not a problem. It's their integration that is the problem. So it's come at the it's come at an angle, come at the wrong angle, and you have to question the motivation behind it because obviously increasing participation is inextricably linked to funding from Sport England. So unless they increase participation numbers, their funding from Sport England either goes down or stays the same. So they're playing a numbers game for money. It's not actually what's good for the game 
that is at the heart of the South Asian Action Plan, in my view. Plenty of people might disagree, um, but I spoke to Taj Butt up in Bradford, uh, and from the get-go, he saw it as, well, it is inherently separatist because it only deals with the South Asian community. You know, um, black and white working-class kids uh, are not part of that program. Um, nonetheless, something needed to be done, uh, but the money that has been spent hasn't strictly been spent in achieving the right outcomes. Integration is what is needed. Yeah, uh, you've been really generous with your time, Duncan, and so I'd like to wrap up by asking you about uh, what is the what do you look forward to? Do you have much hope? For English cricket in this regard, not just in terms of results and what they're going to achieve in on the field, but structurally and as an organization with the ECB and generally looking forward to cricket as a whole, is is it all doom and gloom? Is there anything that we can salvage? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, th- I think I think the future could be very bright. Uh, you know what. Azim Rafiq's testimony set in train and no doubt, you know, and we had the report about uh, Cricket Scotland and there is the forthcoming Independent Commission for Equity in Cricket um, coming out next year. I think what those things will do in terms of dealing with racism, plus (coughs) the broader concerns about the over-representation of privately educated players or elitism following the Ashes defeat last winter, the coronavirus lockdown that highlighted how precarious or unsustainable the ECB's business model is, or the hundred and the threat it poses to established forms of the game, has actually created uh, an atmosphere ripe for change. I think if cricket is going to save itself from itself, English cricket this is, now is the time. If we don't do it now, we never will. So uh, I just hope all the stars align and we can find some common ground and some common sense uh, and actually make cricket a sport for all once again, as it used to be. Yeah, I mean, and and I'm glad the book came out at this time. So you know, it sort of uh, highlights every not just what went on, but also what can be done. And it's not just a book that talks about everything that went wrong, but it also offers solutions. Uh, yeah. And as you have detailed as well, right now, a few solutions in that regard. And I also hope that people do take this chance because I am genuinely fond of several of the English cricketers and I think they have a a fantastic bunch of cricketers they have a lot of talent I mean uh, there is so much so much good that is happening at the top level of English cricket but I just hope that you know the bottom up can become that much better to support the top Mm. for the years going ahead yeah yeah I mean if 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 we were promoting the talent that is out there it will get even better no doubt in my mind. Yeah, 
and uh, i'm i'm glad that uh, we are having these discussions now and and i will link to all the podcasts that you spoke about um including the podcast that uh, took offense at some of the things you said <laughs> people can listen and and make up their mind about what they think but i would <laughs> urge all my listeners to first first thing to do after you listen to this podcast is to pick up the book order it i'll link it it's a wonderful read and uh, something that all of us should be should educate ourselves better on while you know we watch cricket and cricket in england and also think about various aspects of the game like spirit of cricket or the aesthetics or the morality or everything else that goes along with it uh, this is a wonderful read thank you so much duncan for writing it and thank you so much for joining us to talk about it absolutely my pleasure thank you so much india have won the series they're going to get back for two india at home lords goes wide